Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Dan Zahir, my co-host in the show, and are recording this in the evening of Thursday, August 8th, 2019. And uh, Dan, you're, you're just back from family vacation, is that correct, or...? Uh, we got back a couple of weeks ago, hmm. but um, and I think my sunburn has finally gone away, so that's always a plus. <laughs> well, I, I, well I, all right. There, there's a proper way to phrase this question that I, I can. Uh, where did we get sunburned? As in the location, not on your body. I mean, as in we, we went somewhere <laughs> to get sunburned, or what? Back in yeah, we went to 30A Beach near Destin, Florida, and it was really charming. Well, we had uh, the five of us plus my nephew, and we had an absolute ball. Oh, wow. Is that East Coast, West Coast? What? Uh, like I said, it's about, it's about 20 minutes from Destin. Oh, uh, so, okay. So, yeah, right, right, on, right on the Gulf there. Oh, cool. I mean, mind you, going to, to Florida during the summer is sort of like vacationing on the sun, isn't it? Or It is, but luckily I had the right shoes on. Just forgot to put um, the protective stuff on my back. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. Again, I have that. George Carlin used to describe it as that Irish neutral blue skin where I I think at this point there's not a high enough SPF. I, I just put on White House paint and be done with it. Um, but wow. Okay. It's a plan. <laughs> okay. Well, it sounds like you had a good time. And did we get out to see any movies while we were down there or? Uh, not when I was down there, but I have seen, we, I took my son Mason to see into the, uh, not into the spiders. I took Tim to see far from home. He's now seen that twice. Oh. So he's a pretty excited six year old. Mm-hmm. We went and saw The Lion King. We've seen Aladdin. We've seen Toy Story 4. Mm-hmm. And I went and saw the new Tarantino flick, too. Oh, okay. Alice and I are making plans to see that shortly. Uh, of course, the irony is it's if things had gone according to plan, well, I mean, the 2016 plan, that you you know would have been able to take your son this summer to see a brand new Indiana Jones movie. Uh, you know, that would have been amazing. Yeah, well, again, remember, initially when they first announced that Five was in the works back in March of 2016, we had a July 19th, 2019 release date. Uh, that uh, got bumped in uh, April of 2017 out to July of 2020, July of 2018. That got bumped out to July of 2021. And... You know, I, I think we were all waiting for the shoe to drop. And the interesting thing is shoes have dropped, but they're not the shoes we expected. What was it? We had news back in May that Indiana Jones was holding its release date, but it was changing its screenwriter. That John Kasdan, the son of Lawrence Kasdan, that I've got that yep, right. That's right. Okay. Uh, he had replaced nice guy. David Cope. As the uh, the screenwriter, in fact, I, I think was it that John had just rolled off of uh, Solo, a Star Wars story, and that's when he started on indie, or that yeah, that was the transition. That was uh, almost his immediate next project. Ah, okay. Well, well, anyway, evidently John has since rolled off the project, and coming on is uh, is Dan Fogelman. Uh, he's the creator of NBC's hit series This Is Us as well as a screenwriter on Disney's Tangled and Pixar's Cars. 
And the other thing during this month or, or May that I, I thought was intriguing was Harrison Ford showed up on the Today Show. And did did you see or read about this interview that he did on that daytime show? Where I did. I I listened to it on the IndieCast, the Indiana Jones podcast that Ed Dulles does. It's so great. Mm-hmm. And plus, I watched it as well online because that's, I mean, talk about, uh, you know, primetime online clicking. I mean, it's... It was great. Harrison Ford always has that this wonderfully enigmatic enigmatic persona because you feel like he's serious and they might punch you and you also feel like he's also joking too. Mm-hmm. So you just never know with that guy. Well, that that's I Although have... I feel like he's pretty territorial about about Indian. He should be. Well, no, 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 I get that. You know, he he's been playing the role now since what? 81? That's right. Yeah, you know, and and so again, I was going to ask because again, when you read this as as strictly a transcript. I was like, no one else is going to be Indiana Jones. Don't you get it? I'm Indiana Jones. When I'm gone, he's gone. It's easy. This is a hell of a way to tell Chris Pratt this. But again, you know, your spin from having seen it or heard it or again, we're talking enigmatic or was there a touch of humor or what? No, I think I think he's just like, you know, a little bit uh, sardonic tongue in cheek. But I, I think he... I mean, I think he's realistic enough to know that this is a franchise, not a person. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, I, I mean, I, I loved Alden Ehrenreich as Han Solo, and I didn't think that I would. He actually made me forget about Harrison Ford. But Indiana Jones is a whole different kind of a whole different genre, a whole different mm-hmm. character in its own right. So I have a hard time with anyone else being indie, but Harrison Ford. So I, you got to love that. I mean, often think about this through our history. Mm-hmm. Besides, you know. Wolverine and Hugh Jackman, there aren't too many actors who've just completely owned and loved a fictional character they've played. Usually they spend a lot of time trying to distance themselves from them. Mm-hmm. So you got to love that Harrison Ford, who was quite curmudgeonly about Solo for mm-hmm. a long time, that he's doing this. No, no, actually, that's an inspired comparison with Hugh Jackman and Wolverine. But anyway, to get back to Indy 5, evidently... Somebody must like what Fogelman's done with the screenplay because we now suddenly have an April 2020 production start date. Not only that, uh, we, we have a location. I've been trying to track down which studio it is in the UK, but they're saying that, you know, production will start in London next April. <laughs> you know, I, you know, so Harrison will, will finally get to make it up to us for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Uh, by the way, Dan, what is hey. what is our take on that movie? <laughs> I love that movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's fantastic, and I, I even will go on record. I may have said this on one of our first shows, but it's my second favorite Indiana Jones film. Is it, it really legitimately? Really? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I love that it's got the kind of the the role reversal mm-hmm. from Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, where you know the son is now the father, oh. and I just love the the back and forth between he and and uh, Mutt played mm-hmm. by Shia LaBeouf. I love every second he's on screen with Karen Allen, and and who wouldn't want to be in the same kind of shape that Ford is in his late sixties? This is true. I mean, honestly, this I mean, I, I think I love it. I think it's fantastic, and the CGI stuff didn't bother me at all. I, I see. No, that, I think it's a wonderful film. That's that. That is honestly my one complaint about the film because when you think about the uh, the early indie films, there's so much stuff that's done practical. There's so, in fact, that oh, yeah. you know, I mean, half the charm for me of the first Ra- of Raiders is the fact that, you know, you were watching this 30s serial hero 
getting the crap pounded out of him. And nobody quite does that as well, or, you know, those faces, or, or you know, or, you know yeah. as, as Harrison Ford. And in fact, I think that's why, to this day, people still talk about uh, you know, the giant swordsman in, in the square and, you know, the, and him just pulling the pistol because it's just, an, you know, it's the moment you should have seen in, in dozens of movies, but they do, they're the ones who actually do it. It's like, I don't have time for this. <clears throat> you know, and he's down. You know, every semester when I show that, because I inter- I use Raiders of the Lost Ark as, a, as sort of a modern epic hero, people who have not seen that movie, because there are some kids who, I don't know why their parents aren't showing this to them, but we, you know, we try to rectify that in the educational system. People always crack up at that if they've never seen it, or even if they have, it's it's um, it's pretty great. And of course, we know the history about oh, yeah, of how course. that scene <laughs> was just sort of an accident in a way. It is the greatest dysentery-related scene in film history. That that's all. Now we need that to say. is a great one. <laughs> There's a T-shirt. There we go. <laughs> Waiting to happen. Okay. Um, no, I'm- Raiders the best movie ever made, in my opinion. Hands down. It's it's a great film. It, you know, in fact, I I constantly cite it. For the sub scene, because, you know, it, it just talks about, yeah. you know, I mean, face it, when you've built up that much goodwill in a movie that, you know, and, and we see a red line go across the screen and now we're at the next scene. And it's just sort of like nobody ever questions, well, didn't the submarine go underwater? You know, that, that's, it's like it's a submarine. It, it didn't matter. You had so enjoyed the movie up until that point, you were on board. You know, just sort of like, okay, he swims out, he ties himself to the sub. Okay, bring me to wherever they were about to do the ceremony with the Ark. You know, just, I don't and care. No one seemed to question that no one, that his sister couldn't figure out that that was E.T. amongst all those stuffed animals. <laughs> or am I, this, or am I mixing up my Spielbergs? No, no, well, no, no, that, that's, that's a good point as well. Though I think, again, one of the things that really bought a lot of goodwill was what happened immediately after when Indy swims into the sub base and, you know, and, and knocks, you know, the guy out and is, is puts on the, the German uniform. And it does, for the first time in film history, the uniform that they steal doesn't fit, you know. and It's it, wonderful. Yeah. I mean, again, that that's half the fun of that film is all of the reversals. So. You ever, have you ever seen the Marvel comic book adaptation of Raiders? They they show that sequence. Do they and really? What, how he how he survives? Yeah, and he basically takes his bullwhip mm-hmm. and wraps himself around the periscope and ties himself to it, and that's how he gets to the island. Mm. And maintained a steady body temperature across the entire North Atlantic. Absolutely, I, I believe. I actually, never, you know, I never thought about that. <laughs> okay, speaking of other movies, did you see the news just this week about? Uh, Lucasfilm moving forward to development of its first non-Star Wars or Indiana Jones movie in decades. Um, are, are, are you familiar at all with this? This it, It's supposedly a best-selling fantasy novel. Tommy Adam means, what is it? Children of Blood and Bone. Right. No, I the, the title is familiar to me, but I, I couldn't tell you anything about it or... Mm-hmm. How many? If there's, if it's a fran, if there are multiple books, I have no idea. I know that it's uh, people like it. I know it's a well-read book in our local library. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I don't know much about. It. Well, although George did do a, uh, I don't know if it was Lucasfilm, but there was an animated thing that George had had something to do with uh, shortly after he sold Lucasfilm to Disney. But I don't know how how well no. it did in the box office. Oh, 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 oh! I know, you know the thing you're about? talking about, Stranger. Yeah. Ah, okay. Something. Okay. Something. Strange love. Yeah. Strange. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get my Google yeah. Machine. I've. I've. 
<laughs> it's an interesting film, Dan. I, again, having a, a daughter who's an artist, and you know, I, I I support all animators, anybody who's getting a check doing animation. But this was an interesting movie. You know, I, I think he, even the folks who were working on it were like, I don't know. Oh, oh! Uh, before I forget here, we were just talking about Dan Fogelman, the, the, again, the creator of This Is Us. And, and what's kind of intriguing is, while Dan's working on this next director of the Indiana Jones uh, 5, uh, Lucasfilm has actually tapped a writer who works on the This Is Us television series, uh, Kay Ogin. Uh, and they're the ones who are supposedly doing, uh, adapting Children of Blood and Bone to the screen. So... I just strange magic, by the way. That's the strange name. magic. There we go. Okay, yeah. but but again, it's, it always fascinates me that you know Hollywood is such a small town that you know. <laughs> let's just go with the writers of This Is Us. That you know, that's a way to go. Oh, oh, now, um, now I know that. Can we talk about this? That you got the you were invited down to the 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 Walt Disney World media event for. Uh, yeah, Galaxy Edge. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was, uh, and it's it's uh, later. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if we're supposed to say the actual date, although it's pretty much common knowledge. But I'm not going to be the one to say that. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm not able to go. Uh, school obligations and stuff. But I'm so incredibly grateful to get that chance to be able to go back to mm-hmm. Batu again. So, um, my good friend Lisa Dullard, who helps with the website and our social media, uh, who's just been an absolute godsend for coffee with Kenobi. She is going in my steed, and we are very much looking forward to her coverage. Oh, I'm, I'm sure she'll do a terrific job, more to the point that I'm sure she'll genuinely enjoy her time on the ground there, but too. But Oh, yes. Interesting thing is just last week, starting on August 1st, it was the first time that Walt Disney World cast members could get in and start previewing uh, Galaxy's Edge. And did you see the conference call, the earnings, the quarterly earnings call that um, Bob Iger did early this week? No, I, I'm looking forward to hearing about this. Well, and I want to say on our last show, we, we, we talked at length about um, how a number of things that sort of contributed to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge in Anaheim, you know, not doing quite as well as they thought during its opening months. And the interesting thing is, Here's Iger, you know, speaking with investors and analysts and Wall Street movers and shakers and pretty much saying what you and I were talking about, Dan, that that this is a a direct quote uh, from that earnings call earlier this week. Uh, What he says, "I, I think a number of things happened. First of all, helped in part by some of our efforts, there was a tremendous concern in the marketplace that there was going to be huge crowding when we opened Galaxy's Edge. So some people stayed away because they expected it would not be a great guest experience. At the same time, all of the local hotels in the region expecting this huge influx of visitors raised their prices. So it simply became more expensive to come stay in Anaheim. In addition to this, we raised our prices. We brought our daily uh, price up. So if you think about local visitation... We brought the price of a one-day ticket up substantially from a year ago, and and then we opened Galaxy's Edge with one attraction instead of two. The second attraction is going to open in January, so all those factors contributed to attendance that was below what we would have hoped it would be. That said, gas satisfaction, interest in attractions, and the land is extremely high. They're among the most popular things in the park. So long term, and look, we build these things for the long term. We're not concerned whatsoever about them. We're opening Galaxy's Edge in Orlando in August, and second attraction will open there in December. And as I said, the second attraction in Anaheim will open in January. 
So we feel great about the product we've created. It's just going to take some time, basically, for things to work themselves out in terms of how the marketplace is reacting. So, you know, it kind of just circles back on what you said, Dan, that, again, it's a superior product. It just, you know, for lack of a better term, the unintentional message that was sent was sort of, it's a great thing, but stay away. So, yeah. And I, and it, you can seems like, and I don't know if we're going to get into this a little bit or not, but it really seems like, um, based on the fact that online reservations are open, I, am I right that they're already kind of all swept up through December? I've I, for, I've for Ogres and Savvies. You know, this is the thing. I've been trying to get a handle on that. Mostly, to be honest, I've been focusing on the cast member previews, and they've had a couple of issues that kind of took people by surprise in Florida because. They're well. You'll see this when you finally get down there, Dan. But they're they're virtually identical, which the problem is that you designed basically a desert world in Florida. So when the three yeah. o'clock rainstorm sweeps in, you don't have a whole lot of cover. So uh, that's what's going to be interesting about the next six months, I think. In the Florida version of of Black Spire Outpost is. Uh, how do you create Star Wars themed desert appropriate rain shelters? <laughs> so, oh yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, uh, another thing worth noting here, folks, um, to put on your calendar: Disney really isn't taking any chances when it comes to the launch of the Walt Disney World version of Star Wars: Galaxy's Edge. They're already making plans to t- shoot a two-hour-long television special, which is supposed to be entitled Star Wars Galaxy's Edge Adventure Awaits, uh, which is going to air on Freeform on Sunday, September 29th. They've got Neil Patrick Harris, who is a big Disney fan, big Disney goon, uh, slated to host the special. And among the celebrities who are expected to take part in the program are Kelly Coco from uh, Big Bang Theory, Sarah Hyland from Modern Family, Keegan-Michael Key from Key and Peele, and they've even got Jay Leno from the, the old Tonight Show is going to be on hand. So, And beyond that, let's see. Um, I have to ask, now, you've been to the, the Lucas compound on the Presidio, right? Yeah, four different times. Okay, did, did you get into ILM while you were there, or...? Oh no, no. <laughs> okay. So you know I would that? love to, but okay. you need to be working on the movie or, or or wear flannel and be named George to be able to get in there. <laughs> I see. Okay. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll get the flannel and go talk to a judge. There you go. Anyway, I, well, well, the interesting thing about ILM is again, of course, there's the facility there in San Francisco. Uh, there's also what smaller effect shops uh, set up in Singapore, Vancouver, and London. Uh, but the interesting thing is just this week, news broke that there's going to be a new Industrial Light and Magic sort of satellite studio being set up in Sydney. Again, Disney got this as part of their Fox acquisition, the, the $71.3 billion thing. But they got the Fox Studios Australia. And so ILM setting up shop there. And what's kind of interesting is they'll be in place. Uh, there'll be 50 to 100 employees on site by, uh, by Christmas. And just after the first of the year, two, there are going to be two Marvel movies shot back to back down there. Uh, there's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And then right after that is Thor Love and Thunder. So. I'm going to be kind of intrigued to see whether or not ILM does, in fact, end up doing 
effects work on these folks or, or on oh, these yeah. films. For sure, you sure think so? Yeah. I mean, that, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, the, it's nice to see them expanding and kind of in that way, too, because it, there's more opportunity there for things to come out more quickly. I agree. I agree. Um, though, to circle back to something, now, you, you were talking just now about Stranger Magic, and uh, we were just talking about Children of Blood and Bone, but, I, you know, it just it made me think when they were talking about that it had been so long since, you know, Lucasfilm had done a non-Star Wars or Indiana Jones film, and, it, and I got to think, of well, what was the last one that I saw? And it turns out that it was 31 years ago this month that Tucker, The Man in His Dream, which, uh, you know, George Lucas' executive produced for Paramount, was released. Did you ever get to see that movie, Dan? No, I remember the trailer, and I remember seeing Jeff Bridges, that guy from Tron, I remember thinking that. But no, I never saw it. Oh, you you, you got to, especially... You know, at at this time of the summer, you know, with with just a few weeks left of that that cruising weather, and we'll tell you what, I'll explain why when we get back from this commercial break. Okay, we're back, and you of all people, Dan, I don't need to explain to you how, over the course of their careers, George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola regularly bucked each other up. They were, you know, kind of foxhole buddies in Hollywood. Uh, I mean, yeah. we talked on a previous uh, looking at... Kind Lucas. of a big brother to George in a way. Yeah, you know, but at the same time, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, George, you know, eventually acquiring a larger wallet than than Francis, uh, <laughs> was able to, to bail out his bigger brother. Um, and, yeah. And, and, and at the same time, you know, uh, Francis was there at, at crucial moments for, for, you know, for George. I mean, we talked on a previous Looking at Lucasfilm about how when George couldn't persuade King's Features to sell him the, the film rights to, to Flash Gordon, you know, he, you know, Coppola was one who said, write your own story, invent your own fantastical space creatures. And that's how I ended up with uh, with Star Wars. And what's not as well known, though, is how George often helped Francis with his film projects. And one of the, the films that, that Francis just had a passion for and pursued for years was making a movie about Preston Tucker, who was this engineer from Detroit who tried to produce and market his very own automobile back in 1948. This story just fascinated Coppola, uh, which is why after his first really big success, uh, which of course is, is 1972's The Godfather, Francis wanted to make a big screen version of Preston Tucker's tale. And not only that, he wanted Marlon Brando, Don Corleone from The Godfather film, to, to play the title role. Which again, you know, think about this. You 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 know from the trailer, you know that that's Jeff Bridges. So you know, because there's so many roles that both Marlon Brando and Jeff Bridges can play. Uh, but the interesting thing, uh, Paramount turns to Francis and it's like, look, you know, we got to strike while the iron's hard. We got a hit film, and so they persuade him, look, you, you go shoot Godfather Two or Godfather Part Two, uh, and we'll talk about the Preston Tucker thing later. And but Coppola just kept noodling on the idea of making a, a movie about this car maker, and this stand is where it takes a weird turn. At some point, Coppola decides that the Preston Tucker story would be perfect fodder for an old-fashioned 1950s-style movie musical 
you know, because again, you, you look at making cars and that, that just says, ooh, let's sing. Uh, right. Oh, sure. Why not? Well, it's another, another genre for him to tackle. Well, I, I, and, and perhaps that, that's it exactly. But the interesting thing is, who does he now rope in to come, you know, work on this project? First thing first, he reaches out to Betty Comden and Adolf Green. They're the writing team behind M- the MJM classic, Singing in the Rain. He, he persuades them to write the lyrics for all the songs that would be in this film. And then uh, he, and again, it, it, it's somebody who teaches in English in the arts. You're going to recognize this name right off the bat. He persuades legendary conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein to come, wow. come write the music. That's amazing. <laughs> and then the cherry of the Sunday, he gets Gene Kelly, screen legend Gene Kelly, uh, the star of Singing the Rain in American Paris, to, to serve as the choreography consultant on this proposed film. Unfortunately, Francis's production company, American Zoetrope, is forced to file for bankruptcy after his first attempt at producing an original musical, 1982's One from the Heart, crashes and burns at the box office. Okay, we jump ahead to 1986. So this is where uh, we've talked about this in a, a previous looking at Lucasfilm, where, you know, George feels sorry for Francis because he's in this huge financial hole after the American Zoetrope bankruptcy. So he basically strong arms Disney into hiring Francis to direct Captain EO. And George winds up staying on the set, you know, a lot of this time. And, and again, just trying to, you know, sort of keep it, you know, Francis focused because this isn't necessarily a passion project of his. In fact, I think we talked about you know, that Francis actually had to bail during the last 10 days of production of Captain EO because he was committed to directing Nicolas Cage and uh, Kathleen Turner and Peggy Sue Got Married. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, but anyway, you know, during this period, you know, George is hanging out in Francis's trailer and what's in the trailer, but all of this stuff for Francis's Preston Tucker musical. And, and, you know, George is reading the script and going through production schematics and all this. And he, he, he tells um, Coppola, that he honestly think this this could be the best film that Francis ever made. The only problem is, it's the material just doesn't lend itself naturally to being a musical. On the other hand, it would be a terrific, you know, Frank Capra like movie. And you know the Capra films, Dan. You know the It Happened One Night. It's a Wonderful Life. Oh yeah. So Lucas offers Coppola a deal. He says if Francis will agree to strip all of the songs out of this Preston Tucker biopic. George will then agree to serve as the executive producer of the project. Not only that, but, uh, you know, again, circling back onto what we were just talking about, Lucas will make Industrial Light and Magic available to work on this period picture, which, face it, you're, you're doing a story that's set in 1948, and to be able to extend sets and do green screens and, you know, all that will go a long way to making a story that's supposed to be set in 1948, possible. So, okay, you know, they're, they're both buying, trying to be practical guys in 1980s Hollywood. So they put together a, a $24 million budget for Tucker. The film at this point is called Tucker, The Man and His Dream. And they then walk the project around to Paramount, to Universal, to TriStar and Disney. But none of these studios are willing to put up more than $15 million for the production of the film, which just isn't enough. So, unwilling to compromise on Francis's vision for the project, 
George decides to cover Tucker's entire $24 million production budget by himself, which, again, you know, that... Amazing. You really. know, that's a good friend, you know. Yes, yes. You know. Very, he's always been an incredibly generous man. Well, always. but the other thing that's fascinating, okay, and the thing of the cars that Preston Tucker made, only 51 of them ever made it off of the assembly line. And as of April of 1987... 47 of them still existed. And Lucas, through arm twisting and charm and, you know, whatever means possible, got a hold of 21 of them to use in production of the film. So they could do things like literally, you know, lay out a whole, you know, show this, this, you know, this amazing layout of, of 21 of these pristine, you know, 1948 vehicles together. Anyway, uh, production starts in July of, of 1987. And, and and interesting enough, Coppola was eventually able to persuade Paramount to release the movie, largely because at this point, Paramount wanted Francis to come back and direct Godfather 3, which he eventually agreed to do in 89, and the film came out in 1990. And Dan, it would be great to be able to say that this story had a happy ending, but kind of in the tradition of, of what actually happened to Preston Tucker, that after... 51 cars, you know, the big three basically shut him down. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's it's kind of ironic. And when this thing film opened in theaters of, you know, August of 1998, it only made three million, well, $3.7 uh, over its opening weekend. And by the time it finished its theatrical run in the fall of that year, Tucker had only sold $19.6 million worth of tickets, which meant that George never recovered the $24 million that... He put it into the picture, but well, look, Dan, you and I both know George was and still is a big car nut. So it must yeah. have, must have been cool for him to be on the set of Tucker and be surrounded by twenty one of these, you know, uh, kind of th- these classic cars. Sure, hard not to think of American Graffiti too. Well, no, that's it exactly. That's it exactly. So. I have to tell you, folks, if if you are a classic car fan, the very neck best thing next to climbing into a convertible, you know, this time of year and going out for a drive on a warm summer's night, it would be to throw Tucker, that man in the stream, into your DVD player. I mean, it, it, you know, Jeff Bridges is, is, is great as this film's title character, but Martin Landau, he was actually nominated for Best Supporting a- Actor at an Oscar that year. For his role as Abe Carreretz. Uh and this character will, Dan, will absolutely break your heart. It's very much a Frank Capra film. So, folks, if you're a fan of It's a Wonderful Life, you want to see a wonderful movie, go take a look at Tucker, the Man in His Dream. And again, it's just <sighs> a stellar cast. I mean, I mean, oh, no, absolutely, I just, but just yeah. it's just kind of startling to me that it's 31 years now since since that movie came out. So. Sometimes I wonder that some of the all the movies that George made or was a part of that weren't Star Wars or Indiana Jones related, if if those movies were just so incredibly successful and overshadowed everything that if these movies were done 100% exactly the same way with the same everything, mm-hmm. but it didn't have George's name on it, they would have been more successful because people just, when they hear George, you know, the guy was almost not typecast, so mm-hmm. that's not the right expression, but you know what I mean? That's... What people are so used to with George Lucas, and sometimes I think that sort of his success almost worked against him in a way. 
Yeah, I you know I just I, the, the weird thing is when you look at, for example, it, as you mentioned, Stranger Magic, or, or or something like Howard the Duck. You know, I always every so often I, I you just get the sense that George was trying to sh- throw off the Star Wars shackles, you know, and, and be the guy who who could do something other than Indiana Jones and. Um, I, and again, you know, I, 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 no disrespect for Howard the Duck. There, there are there were things in that movie I I personally love. It's a it's a weird little movie. But it's a weird little character. It is a weird little character who apparently is in Endgame for like two seconds too. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. Okay. Well, any I, I, uh, one final note before before we wrap up here. So, it's kind of a traditional thing when one goes to the beach to bring along a pile of books. So, I, I'm assuming we didn't bring books for school. No, no, no. I'm I'm off the clock for the summer. But I brought Black Spire Outpost, the the Delilah Dawson book that's coming out in a couple weeks, uh, and? and it's it's fantastic. It's it's sort of a sequel to Phasma, her original book, a lot of similar characters, and it's tremendous. It's tremendous fun uh, to experience. I like the way it's written. Mm-hmm. And then I just finished Star Wars Myths and Fables, the George Mann book that has um, some myths in it, as the title suggests, and some of them take place on Batu. and uh, man, it is, it is awesome. Yeah. I, mean, I think I'm going to use it in my class this semester. Very cool. Okay, I'll have to circle back and chase those down. Is there anything else looming on the horizon book-wise? Or? Uh, well, I, for Coffee with Kenobi, I, I just interviewed Kevin Scott, the the author of the audio book, which is really much more like an audio drama, uh, Dooku Jedi Lost, mm-hmm. which shows Dooku's rise in the Jedi Order and the Padawans he has and him working under Master Yoda. And the tragedy that is him, and Kevin went out of his way to make sure that it, this was another fall similar to what Anakin went through, but very much Count Dooku's own experiences. And it is, it's great. It's a great interview. And then uh, by the time this comes out, my interview with Jeffrey Brown, author of Darth Vader and Son and Ray and Pals, the upcoming book uh, is going to be out really soon. And he was awesome to talk to as well. Well, speaking of Coffee with Kenobi, could you, you walk us quick through your various podcasts? Because, again, the, there's so much good stuff there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Coffee with Kenobi is a weekly podcast you can find on all your podcast catchers. I just talked about two recent interviews we've had, but we try to make you think about Star Wars and laugh about Star Wars. We have a news segment with the great Tom Gross on there. And then we also have a Patreon page where we do a weekly podcast where we look at popular culture, go behind the scenes of Star Wars and Coffee with Kenobi. We do a lot of, we do a lot of Marvel superhero stuff as well. And uh, of course, uh, you can also find me on Twitter, Mr. Zare, M-R-Z-E-H-R. Very cool. Okay, my side of the fence, the usual crud, folks. We have Disney Dish with Lentesto. We have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. We have the marvelous Disney podcast with the amazing Aaron Adams. Uh, we have fine tuning with the equally entertaining Drew Taylor. Uh, we of course have the the podcast looking at Lucasfilm that you're listening to right now. And tomorrow, God help me, I've been promising this for weeks, but we finally have a recording one, a, a brand new I Want That, which is a, our Disney merch podcast. And Michelle Valladolid and I will be doing that tomorrow, and hopefully that'll be up soon. Can I tell you how much I'm looking forward to that? Because you're going to talk about Galaxy's Edge merch, right? Yeah, but that's the thing. That has been so ridiculously dynamic 
and we're now oh, trying to get a handle on the Disney cast members are as equally crazed as the Disneyland cast members were when it comes to merch. So it's they're kind of carrying away everything before anyone gets in there, or excuse me, the 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 the, the guests get in there. So. Don't get me wrong. They're cast members. They work very hard. They're entitled to whatever they can carry out. But it just, you know, when you you work the side of the street and you're like, hey, there's a this amazing coffee mug, and somebody says it's gone. You know, why not a T-shirt? Oh, those were sold out weeks ago. You know, just sort of, you know, I I I want to give people good advice as opposed to yeah, it was a really cool thing. You missed it. Too bad. Um, But Disneyland recouped theirs before they opened up the park. Um, so they probably will. I, and I guess I probably, I don't want to lose my, uh, my Jim Hill media credentials, but Drew Taylor, uh, was on coffee with Kenobi, mm-hmm. um, last week and we had a ball talking about all kinds of stuff in pop culture and just, just, uh, chatting about Comic-Con and Star Wars and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, well, how can you not have fun chatting with Drew Taylor? So, oh, oh, before I forget, folks, if you could do Dan and I a favor and head over to iTunes and rate and recommend our shows... Uh, likewise, if you really, really, really like what we do here, uh, if you go over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be incredibly helpful. Helps keep the lights on. And I guess that does it for now, Dan. So, but again, uh, two weeks time or thereabouts, we'll be back with another show. In fact, though, maybe you'll be helping me out next week with Disney Dish. There you go. I'm there we here. go. All right. We'll see what happens, folks. Till then, take care. <laughs>